0: Welcome to Free Thoughts, a project of the Cato Institute's Libertarianism.org. Free Thoughts is a show about libertarianism and the ideas that influence it. I'm Aaron Powell, a research fellow here at Cato and editor of
1: Libertarianism.org. I'm Trevor Burrus, a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Center for Constitutional Studies.
0: Libertarians are generally skeptical about state based attempts to alleviate poverty. Because of this, we're often branded anti poor and told we represent an ideology that benefits only the rich. I know I speak for a great many libertarians when I express dismay about this characterization. I'm a libertarian in large part because I believe liberty brings enormous benefits to all, to the wealthy, yes, but even more so to the poor and disadvantaged. I care about helping people and I think libertarianism represents the best path forward. But it's a hard sell and in part because some libertarians are sometimes rather bad at talking about poverty or give the appearance of not taking it seriously. So that's our topic for today's podcast. We'll explore the plight of the poor and how it relates to libertarian thinking. Joining us is Matt Zelinsky, associate professor of philosophy at the University of San Diego and co-director of USD's Institute for Law and Philosophy. Matt's the editor of Arguing About Political Philosophy and is currently writing two books, Exploitation, Capitalism, and the State, and with John Tomasi, Libertarianism, A Bleeding Heart History. He is also the founder of the blog Bleeding Heart Libertarians and, perhaps most importantly, a columnist at libertarianism.org. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Matt.
2: Thank you, Aaron. It's It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So a lot of political philosophies seem to be framed almost entirely around helping the worst off, but libertarianism usually isn't. Instead, we begin with liberty. So does this mean that we don't or even that we shouldn't care about the poor as much as, say, those other guys?
2: No, I I don't think that it does. Um, There is, I think, a tendency, um, not just among people doing political philosophy, but among the population more generally, to read off uh, moral views as kind of flowing directly from people's political uh, positions so that if, for instance you care about uh, children uh, who who might be the victim of gun violence, then a lot of people seem to think that uh, an opposition to gun control ought to flow directly from that moral concern for the children. Or, for instance, if you care about uh, working individuals not making enough money to support themselves or feed the families, then a support for minimum wage laws might be... A direct way of expressing that moral concern, and I think that what is distinctive about libertarianism is its uh, tendency to block that that inference. we don 't think that just because you value something that just because something is truly objectively valuable or morally important, it follows from that that uh, a law um, ought to be uh, enacted to directly uh, pursue that goal or that value. Uh, So we don't think that everything that's worth striving for um, in life uh, ought to be pursued by the particular mechanism of government.
1: But that would be one way of uh, libertarianism saying we should look at it as if it's effective at certain ways. So we could say we need to judge the minimum wage by effectiveness. But there are some libertarians who say that's the wrong way of looking at libertarianism at all.
2: Right. So libertarians come in in different stripes and different libertarians have different moral foundations uh, for their political views. uh, And different libertarians draw somewhat different political collusions uh, from those moral foundations. Uh, They all sort of fit together in in what I like to think of as a kind of broad family of political ideologies, right? Libertarianism isn't one thing. It's more of a cluster of closely related things. Libertarians tend to favor small government. Libertarians tend to favor a fairly hands-off approach to government uh, when it comes to uh, economic matters and civil liberties, but Within that broad framework, there are a variety of individual differences and uh, and some libertarians take a fairly hard line on issues of redistribution and claim that, uh, for instance, even if redistribution could be effective, uh, for instance as a method of uh, pursuing um, uh, a, a moral goal like the the relief of poverty. It would nevertheless be immoral um, because it involves the use of coercion, right? Any kind of state-based redistribution is going to involve coercively taking money from some individuals and giving it to other individuals and Uh, One of libertarianism's fundamental moral commitments is an opposition to the uh, aggressive use of force. Uh, And so some libertarians deduce from that straightforwardly that um, all redistribution via the state uh, is necessarily immoral regardless of its effectiveness or lack thereof.
0: Could we, though, kind of not concede this ground about not wanting to use whatever tools we have to alleviate poverty say by saying that, look, you these guys may say you know if, if poverty is a problem, then we should use the law to solve it. But it, it seems to be like a lot of libertarians could agree with that in a sense by simply saying yes, but if, if law is say the method by which we create a society worth living in or maintain a society, you know, we have protections of rights and whatnot and things that – help us live our lives well, then the way you go about using the law to, say, alleviate poverty or whatever else is by respecting rights, is by uh, creating a framework for economic freedom. So that's – but that still is using the law to help poverty. It's just using the law in a slightly different way.
2: Right. So so I think I agree with you that uh, that we ought not to concede this point. I mean, I think the fundamental lesson here is that libertarians don't necessarily have to choose um, one of these uh, ways of, of critiquing government transfer programs to the exclusion of all others. I think there, there are, there's a lot of things to be said against such programs. There's also some things to be said in favor of some of them, and, and we can talk about that a bit later in the interview, but um, I think, for instance— Libertarians have a point when they um, identify the coercive nature of uh, redistributive programs. I mean, in general, we think that coercion is bad. That's a that's a kind of common sense uh, moral view, uh, one that's held not just by libertarians but uh, but by ordinary people as well. I mean, for instance, right? If 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 I were to engage in redistribution in the way that the state does, right, and take take money from somebody else and then and then give it to Another person uh, who I thought was more needy or more deserving in some way, uh, almost everybody would think that that's wrong. I don't have the right to use coercion in that way, even to achieve, let's say, uh, really valuable and desirable social ends. So it's a bit of a puzzle why the state should be any different, um, uh, and why we should apply a whole different set of moral norms to the state than we do to uh, individual moral agents. So I think you know, there's there's a point there. That's that's a that's a non-negligible. Moral claim that libertarians are making, uh, where it runs into problems, I think, and where it where it begins to be at odds with common sense, is when libertarians take the prohibition on coercion to be a kind of absolute constraint, so that no matter what, right, no matter how uh, minor the coercion involved may be, and no matter how significant. The social gains might be that that coercion could produce. Uh, it is nevertheless deemed impermissible because it runs afoul of this uh, ironclad prohibition. Uh, so I think you know, it's libertarians are right to appeal to to uh, the, the wrongness of coercion. Uh, they're wrong if they take that to to perhaps what you might call an extreme. Um, um, but there are other arguments you can make too, and, and libertarians shouldn't. Feel like they have to choose between the kind of moral arguments and the more pragmatic arguments that talk about the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness uh, of anti-poverty programs in achieving their stated goal.
1: So that probably is a good good way to get into the website you run called Bleeding Heart Libertarians and uh, the sort of mission of the Bleeding Heart Libertarians, which has shaken up and, and angered some people and made some people incredibly happy. So, so I guess the question is, uh, you know. What is a bleeding heart libertarian, and how is that related to the question of libertarianism and the poor?
2: Right. So yeah, we've 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 annoyed a lot of people. Uh, we've we've annoyed other libertarians by not being libertarian enough, and we've annoyed liberals by not being bleeding hard enough. So uh, it feels sometimes as though we're w- fighting uh, a war on two fronts and uh, um, a bit doomed. But uh, but the idea, at least, is is to um, rethink the fundamental moral commitments of of libertarianism, um, and to rethink the idea that, uh, specifically, that um, a, a an appreciation and support of libertarian institutions of free markets and private property is somehow incompatible uh, with. Um, well, concern for the poor, or perhaps even uh something like a commitment to social justice um, those things are, are usually thought to be diametrically opposed you can't be a libertarian uh and uh and be uh committed to social justice um, uh, by by i think both the, the sort of popular culture and by, by a lot of libertarians themselves. Uh, people like Robert Nozick and Friedrich Hayek uh, have made um, kind of extended arguments against the, the concept of social justice. Um, and so we're, we're trying to challenge that idea. Um, and in, in some ways, it's a public image game. I mean, we're trying to uh, rehabilitate the, the image of, of libertarians as these cold-hearted creatures who, uh, because we don't want the state— uh, working actively to relieve poverty, must therefore not think that poverty is a real serious problem. Um, at best or at worst, we might be actively sort of rooting for the destruction of the poor as some kind of closeted social Darwinists.
0: So you, you talk about social justice, but I want to, can we just take a step back and kind of explore that a bit? Because that's a, social justice is kind of a poisonous term for a lot of libertarians. It's not It's not something that. They tend to embrace, or in fact, they see it as a term that's that's employed by people who are very in favor of using the state to do all sorts of illegitimate things. So, what what do you mean when you say social justice? And are you using it in a different way than most of us tend to think?
2: Right. So, when I talk about social justice, I think I probably am using it in uh, a way that's somewhat different uh, from from what most people think. It's it's Almost certainly, in a way that's uh, that's different from uh, the way in which it's used by many of my colleagues here at the University of san diego which is a which is a Catholic institution which uh, prides itself on being uh, committed to social justice and uh, and what they seem to be uh, to mean by that term is, is um, you know, it's almost the kind of thing I, I spoke about at the beginning of the interview, which is that um, to be committed to social justice is ipso facto to be committed to a certain specific set of policy goals. Uh, and so if you oppose those policy goals, you uh, thereby demonstrate yourself uh, to be opposed to social justice. Uh, and I think that that's not a very useful way of thinking about the term. Um, I think what what's what's really going on there and the most charitable interpretation is they have certain beliefs about um, the way certain po- policies work right? and the, um, the way that the economy works in the absence of uh, certain kinds of government intervention or, or regulation. And because they have those background beliefs, uh, they believe that uh, these policy goals that they favor, which tend to be broadly um, interventionist, except on the issue of immigration, in which they tend to be pretty good, um, because they have those background beliefs, they think that the policy goals that they favor sort of flow directly uh, from their their moral commitment, which is a concern to protect the poor and the vulnerable uh, from, from exploitation, uh, 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 from oppression, uh, and from uh, severe harms that they think, um, will would befall them in a kind of unregulated market economy.
1: So would that uh, make it? Oh, would that make it mostly a factual dispute? Do you think?
2: See, see, here is where there is some, some disagreement among some of the bleeding heart libertarians, right? So, um, so bleeding heart libertarians uh, uh, tend to um, believe that libertarianism is is compatible with with uh, uh, with m- certain moral goals that are held by those on the left. Um, and a lot of us think that the only real disagreements between um, those of us on the libertarian side and those on the more standardly liberal social justice side are factual uh, disagreements, disagreements about the the way that policies or, or economic systems work. Um, I think there's a lot to that. I think that um, there there is a great deal of factual disagreement uh, about these matters, uh, partly because they're they're very complex, and, and partly because um, most people are, are rationally ignorant about the uh, the ways in which these things work out. Um, but I think that's not the whole of the story. Uh, I think there there are um, significant moral disagreements too. Um, for instance, on on the issue of coercion, I think that uh, libertarians see Coercion in places where non-libertarians don't, uh, and I think that that is uh, that's not an illusion from which libertarians suffer. That is a that is an insight that they have um, into the the way the political system really works.
1: So there are many uh, there are many philosophical differences in addition to the coercion issue which you brought up, which uh, other than just effectiveness and whether or not empirically free markets help the poor and there's of course a, the the biggest um defender of i would say mainstream social democrat policies a little bit of entitlement state and a, a little bit of freedom would be John Rawls which comes up a lot on bleeding heart libertarians and has a lot to say about the poor so could you tell us a little about what John Rawls says and some of the things that libertarians have said about John Rawls
2: yeah so it's Rawls, a small question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so Rawls, you're correct. I mean, I think he he's pr- generally regarded by philosophers as uh, as one of, if not the most influential, uh, political philosophers of the uh, of the entire 20th century, and uh, his influence certainly continues uh, to this day. Um, in his uh, in his 1971 book, uh, A Theory of Justice. Um, Rawls set forth a a theory which purported to give both a a way of thinking about uh, justice or a sort of procedure uh, to follow uh, in in thinking about justice and a set of of principles of justice that he thought um, would emerge from that procedure um, and that would... Uh, be appropriate to use in uh, governing what he called the basic structure of society, um, which is just uh, his terminology for uh, the sort of basic um, institutions of society, such as the, uh, the the government and its relation to the economy uh, and, and maybe some other um Major social features of the society as well, so uh, so Rawls's uh, uh, procedure uh, was known as the uh, the original positioner that, um, which involves uh, sort of thinking about yourself as though you didn't know your, uh, your place in society um, and uh, uh, as though you're operating behind this kind of veil of ignorance he called it, uh, and asking yourself what kind of um, principles you would want to govern that society given that you don't know, you know where you're going to end up in it, right? I like to think of it as you're sort of, you're, you know, this, you're this soul up in heaven uh, and you're going to be popped into a body uh, somewhere down on earth uh, and, and you don't know whose body you're going to be popped into. Um, so uh, you're, you're trying to pick principles that guarantee Rawls thought that no matter where you end up, you end up in society, uh, you're going to do okay. And so he thought that individuals in this original position would choose Two principles of justice, um, one guaranteeing uh, to each individual uh, a certain extensive or maximally extensive set of basic liberties, Uh, so liberties of the person, liberties of uh, to own a certain amount of personal property and so forth, uh, political liberties, and a second principle um, which dealt with inequalities and which placed uh, severe limits on the kinds of economic inequalities that could Im- legitimately emerge in society, uh, specifically uh, holding that uh, inequalities would only be permitted uh, if they could be shown to be to the advantage of the least well-off uh, members of society. Uh, And it's that second principle, uh, which is known as the difference principle, uh, that has attracted uh, the the most attention, I think, in the literature on Rawls, um, both from libertarians and from from non-libertarians um but also uh that's the aspect of Rawls' theory that I think has drawn the most scorn from libertarians uh since it seems to reflect a commitment to a very thoroughgoing uh kind of egalitarianism material egalitarianism uh that uh libertarians um generally oppose uh, so that's that's the short version of Rawls,
1: <laughs> and uh, so this is applied. I mean, this is a, a sort of justice's fairness ar- argument, which I've always thought was kind of a question of what traits are irrelevant to justice, and trying to make sure that people are ignorant of those, so so they can make a society and go into that society and not have to create it to favor redheads or women or any trait that would not necessarily be relevant to their position in society, which is has some intuitive appeal to it.
2: Yeah, right. And Rawls, in, in setting out the argument here, um, draws parallels uh, between the way we think about material inequality um, based on, say, uh, inheritance and in, in the, in the particular kind of family you happen to have been born into, and the way we think about inequalities that might arise as the result of, say, um, racial discrimination. So Rawls says, look, um, we would find it objectionable and unjust if some people's lives uh, went much, much worse for them merely because they happened to be born uh, a member of the wrong race, and that uh, that race was uh, discriminated against in various ways by society. Um, so denied opportunities for education, denied opportunities for career advancement, and so forth. Uh, we would think that to be objectionable, Rawls says, because um, we think that one's race uh, is a feature of a person that is Um, morally arbitrary, that it ought not be a factor that determines one's life prospects. Um, But then Rawls builds from that and he says, well, look, if we think that race is a morally arbitrary uh, feature of a person, why isn't it just as morally arbitrary what kind of family you happen to be born into, whether it's a rich family or a poor family? Uh, Why, in fact, isn't it arbitrary uh, whether you happen to be born with certain kinds of natural talents uh, or not? And so if most of, if not all of, the existing inequalities that we observe in society are a product of those kinds of arbitrary starting points, right? One's social class or one's natural genetic endowment, then aren't those inequalities too morally arbitrary and shouldn't we um, therefore uh, uh, be uh, uh, at liberty to use the powers of the state to correct them um, so as to give Everyone a sort of fair um, shot uh, at success in uh, in the game of life. So
1: the question is, why shouldn't we? I mean, it's it's an interesting argument, and I've always found it to be uh, you know, worthy of refutation, which is a, a compliment in the philosophical world. Uh, why shouldn't we? What, what do we have libertarians, or what do you say, or uh, what's wrong with that idea?
2: uh well, I think it's it's not uh, as easy to refute as um, as as one might think uh, I mean it's it's a, a shockingly radical conclusion uh, and so it would be nice if there was a, uh, a pat easy way of dismissing it uh, but uh, but Rawls is is very very smart and uh, and he builds a lot into his theory that um, anticipates many of the objections that, Uh, people like libertarians might be inclined to bring against his theory. So, for instance, um, one standard libertarian argument against redistribution is that uh, it uh, destroys incentives. Uh, So if I'm taking money from you uh, in the form of taxes— Um, that uh, produces bad incentives on your end because uh, if I'm taxing you based on your income, let's say, then you've got less of an incentive to earn income given that some of it's going to be taxed away. So you're going to be working less. uh, You're going to be less productive. And if this uh, is magnified over the entire economy, the economy is going to be less productive. Uh, And on the other end, uh, if we're using the money that we take from you uh, to give to uh, uh, someone uh, who doesn't have a lot of money, uh, then that person, too, is going to have less of an incentive to work. Um, so uh, there's, there's kind of a double hit you take from these redistributive policies in terms of incentives to productivity. Um, and, and that has been thought by a number of libertarians and conservative critics to be a major problem with redistributive policies. But Rawls anticipates this, right? Uh, Rawls says that um, in his difference principle, not that inequalities are to be eliminated, uh, but that they are to be tolerated uh, only insofar as they are to the advantage of the least well-off. And by by phrasing it in that way, he takes account of the incentive problem so that if um, taxing uh, the very rich Um, at a rate of, say, 80 percent would so destroy their incentive to work um, that uh, it lowered economic productivity to the point that we weren't getting as much revenue as we would if we, say, tax them only at a rate of, say, 50 percent. Then Rawls would favor taxing them at the rate of 50 percent and not 80 percent precisely so that we would have more funds available uh, to help the least well off. So all that is just to say that uh, that Rawls is Rawls is sharp. Uh, Rawls Rawls knows the standard arguments that libertarians make in favor of markets and against uh, government uh, redistribution, uh, and he anticipates a great number of those in his book. Um, so the problem uh, the problem or problems uh, in Rawls's theory are going to be uh, somewhat. Somewhat more subtle and um, and difficult to detect, and I, I can I can say something about that. But I feel like I've been I've been talking a lot in answering your question here. <laughs>
0: um, so let me try to approach this. I mean, we can we can have these arguments about you know Rawls versus libertarianism and whatnot. But a lot of people, I think, have this objection that's not so much a hard philosophical one or even an empirical one, but an objection to libertarianism and the way it deals with the poor. That's Kind of more rhetorical, uh, perhaps, in in the sense that the the libertarian solution to the poor, as, as you've talked about, like the problems with with Rawls with aiming at redistribution and whatnot, is that it it de incentivizes people to behave in these ways that would otherwise be beneficial to both themselves and to the poor. And so there's but there's this sense at which the libertarian solution ends up looking like a you know, let's just not do anything and it will work itself out. Um that in in contrast with the we see a problem and we're going to set out to solve it. Mm-hmm. And and it's also a it's also a view that says the the poor aren't really again going back to the libertarian puts kind of puts freedom first, it's it's that we're not we're not focused on helping the poor. And so this does this mean that that libertarians I mean, is there Is there something to this argument in the sense that we're we're not really caring about the poor as much as we should because we're letting these emergent processes and markets and other kind of just abstract ideas solve these problems as opposed to setting out with the tools that society
1: offers us to address them head on? Or are we giving the right message to people who lost their job, uh, whether it's I will give you a job versus – uh, free up some markets, and hopefully, but I can't guarantee it. Someone will probably give you a job,
0: right? And in that instance, the guy without the job, you know, the politician saying I'm going to help you, or the libertarian is saying, if we free up markets, then there'll be more employment, and that will help you at some point. You know, it, it, it's not unreasonable to under, you know, it's not unreasonable for him to go with the politician who's saying I'm going to help you right now,
2: right. It's a weird argument. Uh, I, on the one hand, I, I see the concern um, that people have, and I can even, uh, in the right mood, sort of talk myself into sharing this concern, right? I mean, when libertarians talk about letting the market take care of things, that sounds very passive, uh, and it sounds like we haven't really got any solution to the problem, um, and and that isn't very satisfying to most people. Most people, when they see a social problem, they want uh, somebody who proposes uh, concrete solutions to that problem. And and libertarians talking about impersonal market forces don't seem to be offering any such solution. Um, But, of course, when you think about what impersonal market forces actually are, um, uh, it's much less clear that that's that's actually a problem, right? When we talk about market forces, we're just talking about people— Right. making decisions freely about what to do um, with their businesses, uh, with their free time, with their disposable income. Um, that's what market forces are. It's right? also and what of government course.
1: forces are too, right?
2: <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a way, yes. Um, but uh, in, in other words, it's, it's, not, it's not that we are proposing not to do anything about the, uh, the problem of poverty. It's just that we don't want to use the particular institutions of government to do anything uh, about the problem necessarily, Uh, although, again, there, there are some libertarians who... Um, who take a different view on this, and, and hopefully we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but but to say that you don't want government to solve a problem doesn't mean that you don't think people should do something to solve the problem. I, I think that uh, there are all kinds of things that are that are very important: uh, the the uh, making sure that enough food is produced to to feed people in in the country, or making sure that um, you know enough uh, enough shoes are produced that that nobody has to walk around barefoot. Um, and yet, I don't. For a moment, think that we ought to have government programs uh, devoted to ensuring that enough food or shoes get produced, uh, and I don't think um, that makes me sort of any less caring about those problems. I just uh, am fairly confident that uh, in the in the in the market system, uh, people will have the right incentives to produce those things uh, on their own without uh, any central direction from uh, from the state. But I- and of course. Oh, sorry, but just one more point, because because it is important. Um, I, I've been talking about the market, and, 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 and some of you have talked about the market, um, but, of course, libertarians aren't just viewing society as as a market, right? That is, our choices aren't between government and the market um, in, a, in a mutually exclusive sense, um, an exhaustive sense. Uh, there are ways in which free human beings interact with each other um that have nothing to do with the market, uh as for instance when uh I, I go down to a local soup kitchen and, and volunteer my time. Uh that's not a, a market interaction. Uh that's what I think we would describe as, as part of civil society. It's uh, it's part of um the kind of free associations that individuals form amongst themselves. And that's that's an important um Part of, uh, uh, of, of of society just as much as our economic interactions and uh, so when libertarians advocate rolling back the state uh, it's it's not that they're assuming that the market is going to take care of everything um, though libertarians are quite and, and appropriately so, um, fond of and, and appreciative of market mechanisms. It's that they think free human beings uh, can solve these problems um, in, in voluntary ways. Some of which will be market-based ways, but other ways which will be will involve the um, the institutions of civil society.
1: I've had um, I, I agree with everything you say, of course. But I've had I've had a significant number of conversations with non-libertarians, particularly on the left, but even some conservatives uh, who who say that um, even despite all of these mechanisms, civil society and the market, uh, people will fall through the cracks um, because, you know, if we say that there shouldn't be a safety net and even in the term safety net, it, it is implying that people won't fall through the cracks. And so that libertarians are somehow committed to the idea that somebody will fall through the cracks. They won't get a job. They won't be helped by an institution of civil society and they'll end up very down and out and that the person who is against libertarianism is simply saying that he's not willing to, to admit that possibility and that and we should try to make sure that that doesn't happen, which is why we need a safety net in exactly that metaphor of falling through the cracks.
2: Right. So so there's two things to say about that. One one short point and then uh, one somewhat longer point. The short point is that um, passing a law that says that nobody's allowed to fall through the cracks uh, isn't the same thing as guaranteeing that nobody's going to fall through the cracks. Uh, so the problem arises uh, just as much with government programs as it does with uh, voluntary um, non-government uh, aid um, it's it's ne- neither of those things is is a foolproof method of eliminating poverty or ensuring that uh, that nobody gets left behind. So um, if if foolproofness is the standard, then uh, then nobody passes, which I think means that that we need a different standard. Um, the second and somewhat longer point is is this. Um, so the extreme. Um, libertarian view, and, and when I say extreme I don't mean to, to denigrate it, I'm just uh, it is the extreme view, is that, um, is that no uh, government redistribution at all is justifiable um, under any circumstances because it's coercion and coercion is always wrong. That said, um, there is a long uh, tradition in libertarian thinking um, that does in fact make room uh, for some kind of safety net for the poor. Um, so if you go and you read uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 major figures uh, in the libertarian and classical liberal tradition. If you read people like John Locke or Adam Smith uh, or to take uh, some more modern examples, people like Milton Friedman and uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek, um, all of them advocate in some form uh, for a kind of safety net provided by the state uh, with tax revenues. Um, it's a safety net of probably a very different kind uh, than than anything we have uh, in the United States or, or elsewhere. Um, well, um, in, in in most most developed countries, um, but uh, but I think it's different in, in a good way, uh, in that it's it's designed to actually. Um, fulfill the function of a safety net, right, and, and stop people from um, being in a situation where they simply don't have enough money to take care of themselves uh, and meet the, the basic needs of themselves and their family.
0: So this, this spectrum of libertarian views that you brought up, I think, gives us a good opportunity to <clears throat> get to your particular flavor, which is bleeding heart libertarianism. So I was wondering, could you give us the kind of thumbnail sketch of what BHL is how it differs from other sorts of libertarianism and then what you think it has uniquely offered to this question
1: of poverty and disadvantage. Trevor Burrus Or maybe just what your version of BHL, because there's a lot of bleeding heart libertarians.
0: Sure. And if you if there's disagreements, you go into those too. Mm
2: There are there are some pretty wide disagreements. Our our blog role is is, is growing uh and we don't have any kind of uh, uh philosophical purity test that we apply to people before they're they're taken on board. So uh we've got people like me, and I, I think of myself as a kind of broadly um Hayekian um kind of moral pluralist, I suppose. Uh and then you've got uh, somebody like Roderick Long, who um, is a, uh, roughly speaking, a Rothbardian natural rights theorist um, who uh, kind of aligns himself with um, Rothbard and is more leftist, period. Um, but so there are disagreements among bleeding heart libertarians. But what we all have in common, I think, is uh, that we take seriously the uh, the kinds of concerns about poverty, Uh, and exploitation um, and oppression that are characteristic of those on the political left. We think that those are are real concerns, um, but for various reasons, some of which are moral and some of which are empirical, uh, we think that broadly libertarian political institutions of uh, free markets and private property uh, are the best response to those concerns. Um, So, for instance, right, um, you know, some BHLs uh, advocate, uh, like Milton Friedman and uh, and Friedrich Hayek, for uh, a kind of universal basic income so that uh, there will uh, be literally a, a floor uh, beyond which uh, no one is to fall uh, in terms of, uh, of minimum income. Um, you know, Milton Friedman uh, spelled this out in his idea of the negative income tax, um, and Friedrich Hayek discusses the idea uh, at, at some length in, um, in Volume 3 of his Law, Legislation, and Liberty. Uh, so that would be one mechanism that BHLs, some BHLs advocate for, uh, dealing with the problem of poverty, which involves uh, state action, right, um, and, and state redistribution. Um, but it's a kind of state redistribution uh, that avoids a lot of the problems that libertarians see in most uh, forms of state redistribution. So, for instance, one of the advantages of a universal basic income, especially in its uh, negative income tax form, is that it minimizes the role of discretion, Um, among uh, uh, political agents. Uh, So a big problem with redistribution is if redistribution is done according to the whims of legislators, uh, then uh, there are grave reasons to worry that um, redistribution will increase and keep increasing over time uh, to serve the interest of those um, political agents. And that it will be uh, dispensed in ways that, again, serve the interests of uh, the agents who administer them rather than the interests of the people who are supposed to benefit them, namely the poor. Uh, And so here's where all kinds of familiar public choice concerns come about about um, the way in which uh, income redistribution in a country like the United States, for instance, is used to benefit not the poor for the most part, uh, but the middle class who are in a position to uh, offer uh, various kinds of political support and political threats um, to uh, the agents who are in charge of, of passing and enacting uh, these these forms of redistribution um, sorry you want to say something
1: uh, so the if we uh, remove the political noise though that's a, a question I always have so we imagine a better functioning government which is what you were usually going for and trying to figure that out in some way and remove the the noise in the system to create a, a very direct and straight redistribution system uh, that I mean, accounts for various variations that people would generally endorse. For example, people who never work on welfare, um, or versus people who are generally hard up, uh, would that be something that that more libertarians or more bleeding heart libertarians could be could get on board with?
2: Well, it's 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 controversial um, among libertarians and even among bleeding heart libertarians uh, whether that is. Um, something that would be desirable as a kind of first best, right, uh, ideal theory uh, function of government. Uh, I think almost all, all uh, bleeding heart libertarians agree that um, something like a, a Hayekian or a Friedmanite basic income would be much, much better than what we have now. Um, uh, the, the collection of Uh, motley programs that we have uh, ostensibly designed to serve the interests of the poor now. Um, This would be a great improvement in that, both in terms of uh, the incentive effects, in terms of the amount of discretion uh, allowed to uh, political agents, uh, and in terms of uh, overhead costs, for instance, in in administering the program. So, um, for all those reasons, if if we could sort of snap our fingers and move from what we have now to something like the basic income, I think that BHLs agree that that would be a, a good idea. Some go further and and argue that it would be a um, a, re- a requirement of of even an ideally just system, right? So, not just better than what we have now, but part of part of the best. Uh, imaginable form of system. Um, and you get different arguments advanced for that view, but part of the part of the argument is that um, society and the, and the and the social institutions um, that that um, uh, that compose the basic structure of society uh, impose costs upon people. They impose costs and they distribute benefits. Um, and those those burdens and benefits uh, fall on different people in different ways. Uh, and so one idea is that we have an obligation, given that we're imposing costs on people, people by imposing this political system upon them, uh, we have an obligation to make sure that nobody suffers too much, uh, to, to make sure that nobody is is too disadvantaged um, by that system. And a basic income is one kind of rough-and-ready way to do that, to make sure that everybody is deriving some minimal level of benefit from this um this society that we have formed together as a kind of cooperative system of mutual advantage, to use a, a phrase from Rawls.
0: But does this basic guaranteed basic income potentially run into the same sorts of incentive problems that you accused Rawls of earlier? So Rothbard, I believe, in a, a speech that he gave critiquing Milton Friedman's basic income proposal, argued that that the problem with it is you're going to get a, a ratchet effect that say the basic income is $20,000 a year and I make $22,000 a year. Then what that means is that I'm working 40 hours a week for effectively $2,000 a year, which doesn't sound like a great deal. So I'll drop out. And when I drop out to, to get just the $20,000 for not working, we have to, by some amount, increase the amount of taxes in order to fund my now $20,000, which is going to cut into the income of the people who are working, which is going to reduce their earnings, their after-tax earnings closer to that level where they will- They will become one of those people too. Right. And so eventually you get where no one is really incentivized to work because the taxes make it not, not worth your time.
2: So any program of redistribution is going to have some disincentive effect both on the uh, on the tax end and on the beneficiary end um, I think the the negative income tax uh, and and universal basic income schemes more generally um, are designed in a way to be um, more sensitive to those effects and to and to mitigate them uh, and they and it can be Further tweaked uh, in ways that that mitigate the in- incentive effects further. So Charles Murray, for instance, has a has a fairly well worked out uh, basic income plan. He's, an, he's another uh, self identified libertarian. Um, in his book, uh, in our hands, a plan to we- replace the welfare state. Um, he comes up with a variety. It's a fairly detailed proposal, but he comes up with a variety of tweaks that. Um, uh, reduce the disincentive effects on both ends, uh, but even still, there's still going to be some disincentive effects, and that's that's a problem. I think not merely because it uh, requires um, uh, higher taxes to sort of compensate for that effect, um, but uh, but because it indicates a, a, a deeper issue with um, with basic income schemes and with uh, welfare uh, uh, state uh, policies more generally. Um, Actually, there's there's two problems. So the the first one is that, um, to the extent that these policies slow economic growth, uh, they might wind up helping to relieve the poverty the problem of poverty among uh, currently existing citizens uh, at the expense of future citizens. Uh, so I think people tend to underestimate the um, the compound effect of economic growth over time um, right we, 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 it's easy not to appreciate uh, just how big of a difference that can make in average um, quality of life so for instance there's there's one figure that says if the um, if the annual rate of growth in the American GDP had been just one percentage point lower uh, between 1870 and 1990, uh, Americans in 1990 would have been no richer than Mexicans in 1990. Um, So a tremendous difference in in quality of life results from uh, a fairly small difference in GDP growth over time. Or similarly, um, if you have a country that's that's growing at a rate of 5% per annum, uh, it would take it about 80 years, just over 80 years, to go from a per capita income of $500 to a per capita income of $25,000. Whereas at a rate of growth of 1%, uh, that same improvement would take uh, 393 years. Uh, So economic growth over time makes a huge difference in in the amount of wealth in a society and the average quality of living of members of that society. And so if it turns out to be the case that... Uh, welfare state programs, even welfare state programs like the basic income, have a significant negative effect on economic growth. I think that's a good reason to oppose them, not just on grounds of economic efficiency, but because when we're concerned about poverty, we're not just concerned about the the poverty of the people right in front of us. We ought or we shouldn't be anyways. We should be concerned about um, poor people who exist in the future, right? And if we want to ensure that poor people who exist in the future um, aren't going to be badly off. In fact, if we're concerned to make them not poor, uh, then one of the most effective long-term strategies that we can pursue to achieve that goal um, is a strategy that promotes economic growth. So
0: let me loop us all the way back around to this question that we opened with, which is the the relationship between libertarianism and the poor, and ask you specifically about the bleeding heart libertarian position or maybe the Matt Zolinski version of the bleeding heart libertarian position which is so are you a are you advocating libertarianism because the empirical evidence indicates that it's the best way to help the poor so you're starting with we should help the disadvantaged that's that's the goal and libertarianism is the best way to do that or are do we have are there other reasons to support libertarianism that either exist outside of that or potentially trump it so if if the empirics changed and it turned out that a non libertarian solution was the best way to help the poor, would that be reason to give up or for you to give up libertarianism in favor of an alternative or would you have reasons for sticking with the libertarian position
2: That's a good question and It's a difficult question to answer because I don't have a fully developed and articulated set of moral principles from which I deduce uh, all my more particular um, political, uh, and economic views. Uh, and I, I realize that people sometimes expect such a thing from, uh, from a philosopher. Uh, but I think in some ways that's expecting too much. Uh, I have, I have some fairly strong opinions about uh, a variety of different moral matters. Uh, and I try the best I can to, um, whip those those beliefs up into something like a coherent system um, or to resolve any contradictions, at least, uh, when they make themselves manifest to me. Uh, But I'm suspicious of system-building in moral philosophy, uh, almost as much as I'm suspicious of, uh, central planning in the economic realm. I think there's a certain amount of hubris, uh, that underlies both of those projects. Um, so I'm not totally sure, (laughs) uh, what, uh, what the answer to that question is. For me, I think, uh, the, the question of poverty is, is more like a, um, a constraint than an overarching goal, right? So the way I think about it is if it turned out to be the case that these um, these libertarian institutions of free market and private property, which I support on, generally speaking, other grounds uh, than their effect on the poor. But if, if it turned out to be the case that those institutions had some uh, disastrously bad um, implications for the poor, right? I mean, if it turned out to be the case that free markets really worked the way that uh, that Marxists say they do or the way that um, uh, people on the progressive left say that they do, um, that, for me, would be a good reason to rethink my commitment to those institutions. Interesting.
1: So so the question here, it seems um, to bring up a point which uh, I think is a good one to, to bring all these ideas back around because it's been implicit in a lot of the discussions. But if you have a situation that runs on libertarian – a political system that runs on libertarian principles wherein 2 percent of the people uh, control an amazing amount of wealth and the 98 percent of the people are completely destitute and everyone followed libertarian principles to get there, the question that is always I think – morally intuitive and attractive to most people is the diminishing marginal, uti- marginal utility of wealth, that the incredible wealth enjoyed by some of these people, even justly earned, um, is, does not compare to how much it's, it would be worth it to take $1,000 from Warren Buffett and give it to someone who is starving to death. So I think this is a big animating principle of the welfare state, but also they could admit. Uh, someone who supports this could admit various things that, that we hold to be true. Like yes, it, it's, it's presumptively wrong to take from someone. But here the benefits outweigh the costs. And so without diminishing marginal utility of wealth, it would seem like you wouldn't really have a welfare state. You need rich people. It seems like the, the money is less valuable to them than it would be to give to someone else. So do we just have to accept that truth and, and make more systematic claims or is there something wrong with that claim?
2: I'm tempted uh, I'm sorry I'm uh, I wouldn't hang too much myself on claims about the diminishing marginal utility of wealth per se uh, at least insofar as that kind of consideration is is tied directly to a, a broader utilitarian moral framework for evaluating public policy so for, so for instance right I don't, I don't think the problem with... Uh, Some people being very rich and some people being very poor is that, um, you know, we we would have uh, more more of this stuff we call aggregate utility um, if we took from the rich guy and gave to the poor guy instead. Um, I'm not I'm not concerned with maximizing. Uh, Aggregate utility. I'm concerned with individuals, uh, and so if some individuals don't have enough to get by in a market society, that's a problem independent of the way in which their uh, destitution contributes to um, uh, 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 aggregate utility or disutility overall. So it's a it's a and, and maybe this is part of my libertarianism, right? Because I think one of the kind of foundational uh, moral commitments of, of libertarianism is a, uh, a commitment to individualism and moral evaluation. What we think matters, morally speaking, as libertarians is how individuals are doing, not how groups or classes or nations are doing.
1: So if we're skeptical about redistribution, maybe not you know, all of us against it, but skeptical about uh, its morality and its effects, uh, but we care about poor people, which I absolutely do. Um, what else can, can libertarians say about poverty and what a libertarian solution or a way to address at least some of the worst causes of poverty that, that exist out there? What can we do about it?
2: Well, I actually think if you understand libertarianism as being defined by uh, its, its opposition to coercion uh, then that actually places libertarians in a particularly good place uh, to advocate on behalf of the poor, uh, because uh, I think that when you look at the actual causes of poverty in the real world, um, a great many of them are uh, uh, can be traced back uh, to uh, the to unjust uses of coercion um, that that libertarians themselves, given their own basic moral premises, uh, would condemn. So, for instance, one of the most egregious forms of coercions uh, that states exercise today that perpetuates poverty um are the are the immigration restrictions uh that developed countries uh place that prevent uh poor people from the developing world uh from traveling uh to the United States setting up shop there setting up their families there uh and partaking of the tremendous economic growth uh that uh our system makes available to people uh i think there's a tendency for for those on the left who are concerned uh, to relieve poverty, to think about poverty, uh, in a kind of nationalistic way, right? So we're thinking about uh, the the poor people who are immediately around us, who are in our cities or our states or our countries. Um, but I think that's absolutely the wrong way to think about poverty. Um, if you think about um, the severity of poverty and who suffers the most from it, it's mostly people living outside of the developed world. Uh, and so if you're concerned to relieve poverty where it's at its worst, those are precisely the people that you ought to be focused on. And the kinds of programs that those on the left advocate to relieve poverty within their societies often kind of paradoxically exacerbate it for those outside of those po- out of their societies. Because every time you build up the welfare state uh, for those within your society, you make it harder and harder for people outside of that society to have access uh, to the, the basic economic framework of poverty. Of, of free trade and private property that um, that really have this tremendous wealth generating potential um, people don't want to let in a bunch of immigrants if they're worried that those immigrants are going to be a drain on their on their welfare services so I think one of the most effective things that libertarians who are concerned with poverty could do is to advocate for open borders and uh, for the dismantling that is of the coercive boundaries uh, between states that are established by states and unjust on just Basic libertarian principle.
1: Yeah, and I think that there's a saying too. I mean, that's a great point about broadening your moral sphere. And uh, it has been said in a couple papers that the biggest single policy change you could do to alleviate poverty would be to have open borders or incredibly relaxed borders throughout the world could uh, nearly double uh, the GDP of the world in a pretty short scale.
2: Yeah, I think that's by and away the 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 biggest example of State action that exacerbates poverty that that libertarians um, I think can and should be saying more about. But there are lots of other examples too, right? There are lots of things that the state does that make it harder to be poor or that make it more likely that uh, people are going to be poor or, or stay poor. So uh, minimum wage laws, for example, that uh, that produce unemployment, rent control laws that make it harder for people to get a home, uh, milk uh, price supports or other agricultural price supports that increase the price of basic Foodstuffs um, that are that are that, that consume a disproportionate share of the uh, of the income of the poor. Um, restrictions on entrepreneurship, right? So, uh, occupational licensing requirements that mean that you have to get a license from the state to braid someone's hair uh, or to drive them to the airport. All of these are regulations that um, are unjust on libertarian grounds and that hurt people and that disproportionately. Hurt the poor, Uh, and so I think there's a um, there's a wide field of issues on which libertarians are in a really good position uh, to advocate for policies that fit squarely within uh, their ideological wheelhouse, uh, but that also demonstrate um, a a profound concern for the poor, and that would make a real difference in the quality of lives of the poor uh, if they were enacted.
0: Thank you for listening to Free Thoughts. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can find me on Twitter at A-Ross P. That's A-R-O-S-S-P.
1: And you can find me on Twitter at T.C. Burris, T-C-B-U-R-R-U-S.
2: And I'm on Twitter at uh, Matt Zwolinski, that's M-A-T-T-Z-W-O-L-I-N-S-K-I.
1: To
0: learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.